It's me, Harry Stebbings, at hstebbings1996 with two Bs on Instagram, and you're listening to the official Sasta podcast, and my word, what a show we have in store for you today. Before the episode, though, I do want to do something quite unusual and take the time to say that not only is today's guest an incredible leader and CEO, but he's one of the kindest and most genuine individuals in the ecosystem, and I really am very proud to have him on the show today. So I'm thrilled to welcome Michael Katz, founder and CEO at MParticle, the customer data platform that integrates all of your data and orchestrates it across channels, partners, and systems. And to date, Michael's raised over $75 million in funding with MParticle from the likes of Social Capital, Greylock Partners, GV, Battery Ventures, and many more great names. And prior to founding MParticle, Mike was the founder and CEO at Interclick, where he organically grew revenue to over $140 million in five years. The company then went public in 2009 and was acquired by Yahoo in 2012 for a reported $270 million, a 50% premium on the existing share price. I hate to add. And if that wasn't enough, Michael's also a board member at Adaptly and at Brightline. And I do also want to say a huge thank you to both Oren Hoffman and Howard Lindzen for the intro to Mike today. I really do so appreciate that. However, before we welcome Mike to the hot seat, thanks to my friends at WePay. Let me introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, InvoiceBerry. InvoiceBerry provides online invoicing software for small businesses and freelancers. And it takes less than two minutes for business owners to sign up and send the first invoices to clients. The pick of its features include auto-converting quotes to invoices and automatic reminders. Learn more at invoiceberry.com and to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments, just like Invoiceberry did, visit wepay.com forward slash sasta. They've got this fantastic cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments. Again, that's wepay.com forward slash sasta. Who knows? Work with WePay and you could even be featured in a future sasta profile here. Start at wepay.com forward slash sasta. However, as a founder or operator, we all know that really your most important job is people operations, whether that be hiring execs, developing managers, retaining that top talent, and really building a high-performing culture. And that's why you need Lattice, because Lattice is the number one people management solution for growing companies. And that's why companies like Asana, Reddit, and Cruise build a strong company culture. With Lattice, it's easy to launch 360 reviews, share ongoing feedback, facilitate one-on-ones, set up goal tracking, and even run employee engagement surveys. And Lattice is the only solution that combines performance management and employee engagement, so operators can really make sure their top performance are happy and Lattice is giving away three months of Lattice free to Sasta listeners. Just go to lattice.com forward slash Sasta to receive the offer. That's L-A-T-T-I-C-E.com forward slash Sasta. Build an award-winning culture with Lattice, the number one people management solution. But you've heard quite enough of these terrible English tones. And so now I'm very, very excited to hand over to Michael Cass, founder and CEO at MParticle. Good. That's perfect. Okay. I think we're warmed up. Michael, such a pleasure to have you on the show today. I heard so many wonderful things from Oren Hoffman to Howard Lindzen, so thank you so much for joining me today. All lies, but you're very welcome. It's great to be here. Well, I'm sure not, Michael, but let's start today with a little on you. So how did you really come to make your way into what I always call the wonderful world of SaaS and really come to found MParticle? Sure. So MParticle is actually the second company that I started. The first company was in the advertising technology space. We started a company called Interclick back in 2000 and six or so. And we took it public a few years later. And then Yahoo bought us for a little under 300 million back in 2011. And it was at Yahoo where I saw really the emergence of mobile. And we saw a nascent ecosystem where there were lots of point solutions that were aggregating various technologies and approaches. The thesis behind MParticle was that as the investment into the, the mobile ecosystem continued, 
you would start to see specialization and you would start to see this disaggregation of technologies. And you see this a lot across various industries where over time, as the supply chain matures, you find not only these specialists, but then you find integrators. And so what MParticle set out to build back in 2013 was an integration solution. We are a, a customer data platform that makes it easy to unify data across various digital and analog touch points, and then make it really easy to integrate that data into any of the systems that a consumer-facing company like Airbnb or Spotify or Hulu or anybody else uses to ultimately run and grow their business. I do have to ask, Michael, we spoke about the scaling of Integrate there, and I'd be a terrible interviewer if I didn't ask. What were the core takeaways and lessons for you in really seeing that scaling of Interclick, and how do you think it kind of fundamentally impacted your operating mindset and how you build MParticle today? Yeah, great question. I mean, there are so many takeaways, as you can imagine. The first one, though, I'd say would be to build for sustainability. So think about building the strongest foundation possible, first and foremost, across tech and finance and operations and sales. You know, while every competitor may be doing sexier things, and we see that right now with AI and ML, just master the fundamentals. We set out to build the best possible company. We weren't always doing the sexiest stuff, but it put us in a position to be able to extract as much leverage out of the business as possible. I'd say second, the customer is by far and away the most important stakeholder. So competition doesn't matter as much as people make it out to be. And ultimately, there will be competing priorities. You get pulled in lots of different directions by clients, by partners, by employees, by investors. And you have to relentlessly put the customer at the top of the list in every decision that is made. And then I'd say the last takeaway that I'll talk about today is, you know, winning can sometimes look like losing. It's really easy to become fixated on an outcome really early on, only to realize that in hindsight, not winning that deal or not hiring that person was really the best thing that could have happened. So my my takeaway there is just don't be overly obsessive about any one thing and also enjoy the ride because it's fun building a company. I couldn't agree with you more there in terms of the enjoyable elements of company building, but I do want to start on what we said there about customer data platforms. They really are the buzzword. So I want to start with that and how you fundamentally thought about not only building a company, but also building a category as you really have with the pioneering of MParticle. Yeah, it's it's not easy. First and foremost, we didn't set out to build a category. We set out to build the future. I mean, this was based on some strongly held views that we as a, as a founding team had based on our experience. And so we invested heavily in our brand and our market presence really early on. So I think we may have created the perception that we were bigger than we were. And I think other folks took notice and said, oh, these guys are, are doing well. I want to do what these guys are doing. This seems like a, a great opportunity. But you can't focus too much on the category itself. You just have to focus on building the best possible solution to create as much value for your customers as possible. I do have to ask, Michael, you mentioned that the, the heavy allocation in terms of resources towards brand. The obvious element now is the sunk cost in terms of brand building versus platform building and kind of resource allocation accordingly. How do you fundamentally think about that? 
Sure. So just to review, like sunk costs are, are costs or investments that have been incurred by past decisions. And the implication is that the upfront investment is high and by nature somewhat risky, but it pays dividends over time. So a lot of people think about sunk costs in relation to engineering and platform building. Well, when selling to the enterprise, you have to invest a ton in building your brand, especially in the early days, because most big companies like buying software from other big companies or or other successful companies. And they can be somewhat risk averse as it relates to engaging with startups. And so you have to invest a ton in your brand and your market presence in the early days to portray that image that you're probably bigger than you are so that if you are selling to the enterprise, they will take you serious. Now, I do have to dive in. I have so many founders uh, email me, tweet me on a daily basis asking two fundamental things about selling to enterprise. First is kind of from a more starting point perspective, how can startup founders really look to build relationships with kind of enterprise buyers in the sea of startup founders looking to build those relationships? Is there any advice you'd have? If you're selling to the enterprise, focus on selling to the enterprise. That means invest all of your energy in building relationships with enterprise buyers. Focus all of your go-to-market on creating awareness within the buyers of software within the enterprise community, right? There's lots of amazing communities and forums if you want to sell into the developer community or if you want to sell into the long tail and you probably have a bunch of competitors around you that are doing really well with respect to those tactics. None of that matters if you're selling to the enterprise. So focus on the buyer and the buyer at an enterprise is very different than a buyer at a, uh, a small or medium sized business. They want to meet with you. They want to engage. So good old fashioned sales is still very much in style in the enterprise. So go pick up the phone, send an email, get on site, leverage your your network by any means necessary, get in front of the buyer. That would be my advice. I mean, I love that advice in terms of getting in front of them. Other than getting in front of them and kind of really building the brand to be maybe larger than it is in reality, are there any other ways that startups can then subsequently, once the kind of initial touch point's been built, they can build trust with that enterprise and kind of validity? And how much of a role do you think like V backing and brand name VCs play in providing that validity to the startup? So your VC backers absolutely matter to a certain extent, but they're not going to win you the deal. It's a stamp of approval that says this startup who has just received X amount of dollars in funding is a legitimate company. The investor has done their research and their diligence and they have put their money where their mouth is and they have invested in this company. So it provides a sense of credibility, but you still have to go out and win the deal. They can help facilitate the conversation, but I've never seen a deal get done because somebody was an investor or not an investor. You still have to do all of the heavy lifting. If we progress this kind of relationship through the funnel though now, and these enterprise buyers are now partners and clients, uh, you said that about making them successful and having that as a priority. I'm intrigued. How did you think about that? And then also just in terms of kind of from an accounting perspective, do you bake that into your CAC when thinking about kind of capital efficiency and forecasting? What's the thoughts around that? Sure. So as it relates to our partners and our clients, their success is our success. Their failure is our failure. And that becomes deep rooted in our culture and our value system and the way that we operate day in and day out. And what's funny or somewhat counterintuitive, if you focus on everyone's success around you, that can actually make you very successful. And so 
where we sit in the ecosystem by connecting our customers' customer data with a whole sea of integration partners, if something goes wrong, naturally, like all fingers are pointed our way. But when things go right, we're somewhat invisible. So we know that we're not necessarily ever going to be the center of attention or get the credit. We're here to facilitate with dial tone reliability, a transfer of data out to mission critical systems and, and to be that infrastructure. And so if everybody around us is successful, we're doing our job. No, I, I love that kind of focus uh, solely on the customer there. In terms of, I do have to go back to the element of kind of building the brand and that importance just to gain those customers and that trusted relationship. If one's at seed, how can one think about kind of raising enough funds to both build the brand and build the team in kind of a simultaneous step-side function? How do you think about that when so early on in the fundraising process? And is that really possible? It absolutely is possible. The advice I got and the advice I give to young entrepreneurs is no matter how much money you think you need, double it. Uh, the size and the quality of the logos really does matter, especially in the early days and selling to the enterprise. So we spent a lot of energy making sure that we won a few Lighthouse accounts really early on. For us, it was SeatGeek and then Starwood and then Zappos and then Spotify. And that allowed us to create that early momentum by which when we walked into the next handful of meetings and people would naturally ask us, well, who do you work with? We didn't have to beat around the bush or say, uh, well, we're talking to X, Y, and Z. We had a list of customers that were really, really impressive. And so the balance, though, is capital efficiency because you do have limited resources and there is no really perfect way to address this. You have to get creative and you have to be thoughtful. I'd say zig when everybody else is zagging. Don't just invest a lot in SEM because everybody else does. For us, especially selling to the enterprise where we have a target list of maybe 2,500 customers, we're not trying to reach millions and millions of people. So we knew that that wasn't going to be a good investment in terms of marketing resources. We've actually been really successful investing in areas or platforms that others weren't. And that allowed us to stand out. For example, we've invested a lot in podcasts and a few other areas. And I feel like you have to be able to stretch those early dollars as far as possible. Well, I mean, I'm horrendously upset that you've never come to me for podcasting, but uh, we'll, we'll, take, <laughs> we'll take a break from that one. Eh? We will. We will. We'll be back. <laughs> I'm sure. But I do want to ask, you make it all sound very easy with, as you said, the incredible clients that you built early on there and the journey that you've had so far. But if you take a slightly reflective stance, are there elements that you look back on now within that kind of category creation process that you really found most challenging? Are there some that stand out to you? It's everything. So from <laughs> educating the market, it's a slow process. So you have to be patient. Budgeting and budgets aren't readily available. So you sometimes have to get creative with how you price things, especially early on. Marketing and communications is not obvious because you can't just identify another company doing what you're doing and say, oh, I'm just going to improve on what they have. So you have to iterate a lot. Hiring is tough because you can't just pull people from some bigger company that you aspire to be someday. You are hopefully building the company and the category and you're saying, I'm going to change the, the, the paradigm and create something from nothing. And that's very hard for all of these reasons. And so like where a lot of people can go wrong is they get caught in the weeds and they don't step back and they don't see the big picture. You don't want to just create a category and a company 
company, but like you want to lead it along the way, right? So it's a delicate balance, but I think it's something that we've done pretty well so far. No, I mean, absolutely you have, but you you led me very nicely into my segue with the talk on pricing now and how it changes, because I do want to move slightly away from the landscape and drill one layer deeper really into kind of business mechanics and discuss both multi-year deals and pricing. So often in the world of SaaS, and I'm really looking forward to hearing your thoughts on this, multi-year deals are this kind of hail deity of, of brilliance. However, when we chatted before, you mentioned to me that multi-year deals are not always good. Talk to me, Michael. Why do you think this? And what are some kind of fundamental challenges associated with them? Sure. Well, I would say multi-year deals are good if you have a very transactional sales process. But if it becomes much more strategic and for us, elongated, our sales processes are usually six to 12 months or so. But on the other side of that, our product is inherently very sticky because of all the different systems that we're syndicating data to. If there's a strong element of stickiness, then you don't want to lock yourself into a multi-year agreement, especially in the early days of the company. Because ultimately, how you price today may not be how you want to price next year. As a very small company, you have to take more risk and be more flexible with your pricing in the early days. And then you can let that evolve and you can recalibrate it as the company gets bigger, as the category matures, as lots of things naturally happen that will allow you to reorient your pricing towards a more balanced structure. I'm really pleased you said there about that concern because I have a different concern, which is the concern of kind of deferred revenue and essentially being cashless revenue over the subsequent years. You know, you've had an incredibly successful journey prior to end particles. I'm really interested. How do you think about kind of that deferred revenue and whether it affects the mindset of potential acquirers and how you think about that? Yeah, that's a good question. Obviously, deferred revenue and having multi-year agreements is great because it presents an element of stability. But again, I go back to what I just said. If you know that your product is inherently very sticky and you have very high retention rates and your net retention is well over 100%, I think optimizing to deferred revenue would be a bit misguided. You need to be confident in the business you're building and the product that you have and continue to build and improve upon and bear some of that risk in terms of sustainability for the trade-off, which ultimately will be larger contract values and sizes in the out years, in years two, three, and beyond. Yeah, no, absolutely. I do want to jump on one element that you said also, being your sales process between six to 12 months. I often get founders kind of targeting enterprise say to me, Harry, six to 12 months, the ROI on those sales reps is taking time. I'm getting nervous. It's just too long a ramp time. Should we be doing smaller deals in between to kind of make up for that lack of immediate revenue generation? How do you think about that? And what advice would you give to that founder? In the early days, do everything. And and I know that this is contrary to what most people will tell you, but we took on a number of deals in the early days that we would never contemplate taking on today. And what that did for us was really three things. It allowed us to build momentum. So it got the team believing in the fact that we were doing the right thing and we could win. It created revenue for us. So obviously it it slowed the burn, which is also good because that elongated our ability to, to last. And then it allowed us to see data flowing through the system and be implemented and instrumented in these live environments, improve upon our product. And so, yes, you do want those lighthouse accounts. But to your point, it is going to take several months, if not 
several quarters or a year plus to get into those accounts. So in the meantime, where are there quicker wins? Can you work with people in your in your network? Can you give the product away free, do limited proofs of concepts by any means necessary because you need to get those proof points that I just mentioned? In terms of kind of getting some of the proof points, some founders say to me kind of in their urgency, hey, should we do partner programs? Might that be a brilliant savior? How do you think about that and when the right time is to maybe engage with partner programs? So I think partner programs are a bit of a sucker's bet, especially early on in the company. You really want to be able to control your own destiny and you really want to be able to understand the motion of your business by outsourcing to a channel partner. Ultimately, you're mortgaging your future if you don't already have the fundamentals mastered in your own business. And there's no way that you can have the fundamentals mastered just by nature of being an early stage company. There is a point where the business evolves and the unit economics are in place, the systems are in place, the processes are in place, where then you can start to look at channel partnerships and outsourcing and things like that that augment your core strategy. So it's really a matter of augmentation. I don't believe, at least for this business, that channel partnerships should ever be part of the nucleus of the company. Yeah, no, I completely agree that. I do then want to finish. And before we move into the quick fire round, I want to discuss your location. You're based in New York, not a conventional wisdom for success in SaaS, but um, a hugely growing ecosystem. So tell me, what's it like to build a SaaS company specifically in New York and maybe specifically a SaaS company versus the Valley? Well, New York is the greatest city in the world. It's tough to argue with that. Uh, I'm actually a big supporter of New York tech. And you look at some of the enterprise software companies that have come out of New York recently. And I think there's never been a better time to build a software business in New York City. You have Datadog and Flatiron, AppNexus, Moat, Oz, Braze. You have a number of really exciting startups like Troops and, and, and a few other folks. And I feel like the ecosystem is as strong really as it's as it's ever been. But I think what's nice about building in New York City is that you do stand out, right? There are so many industries here. There's so many different types of, of people and you can draw on that wealth of diversity and you're not drowned out by 18,000 other tech companies. And so for me, being in New York City really provides us a platform or, or soapbox to stand out and I think do great things. Can I ask, what are the fundamental challenges of being there? If that's kind of the access to incredibly diverse talent being all around the world's greatest city, kind of the growing ecosystem itself. What are the challenges that you maybe think about a lot? So I think getting access to great sales talent is definitely tougher in New York City. There's lots of amazing enterprise sales talent in the Bay Area, but the talent pool here in New York City is just smaller. It is what it is. And so oftentimes when we're building out our sales team or or we're trying to find our next sales hire, there oftentimes isn't a perfect background or, or LinkedIn profile. And we're trying to figure out what are the right proxies that represent a high likelihood of success. Because like I said, the, the talent pool is essentially a lot thinner here in, in New York City. And then just the, the mentality that you have to have in order to survive in New York is just different. You have to be tougher. You have to be nastier. You have to be scrappier. You have to be smarter and, and more thoughtful at the same time. So it presents a whole different element that you don't find in other cities. No, 
Now, I could talk to you all day, but I do just have one final thing to jump on from that before we do the quick fire. You mentioned kind of the proxies to focus on with those canvas. I'm really interested and I'm always fascinated by when's a stretch a stretch too far in terms of a candidate? That's a great question. And it's something that we ask ourselves all the time. I think what it comes down to is a few factors. How much do I have to pay this person? What is their background? What is their likelihood to be successful? Have they been successful in the past? You know, we see that as one of the strongest indicators of sales success. Have they sold a complex product in the past and been successful at it? Because good sellers are good sellers. And so if somebody wants $100,000 or $110,000 base salary plus commissions, like we're probably willing to take a pretty good chance on that person. If they want twice as much of that, or say they're coming from a much bigger company and they want three times as much as that, the value trade-off probably isn't there. No, I, I totally get you on the value trade-off there. But I do want to move into a quick fire round. It's very annoying. I wish we could chat for hours, but uh, I would love to move into the quick fire. So I say a short statement, Michael, and then you give me your immediate thoughts in about 60 seconds per one. Are you strapped in and ready? Um, let's, let's do this. Okay, so this is probably one of my favorites. What motto or quote do you most frequently revert back to? Life is good. You know, sometimes the journey is bumpy, but we're incredibly blessed and incredibly fortunate to do what we get to do every single day. So always good to step back and just acknowledge the fact that we live in an amazing time, in an amazing place. We get to work with amazing people. And as I was saying earlier, like, enjoy the ride. This isn't in the schedule, but I do have to ask it. See, you have two hugely scaling companies, one sold and, and Particle now absolutely crushing it. What do you do, though, to de-stress? What's your coping mechanism? What's your calm down? What's your stress reliever? I work out a lot, probably five days a week between circuit training and I've done Muay Thai kickboxing for probably 10 or 12 years at this point. And that is extremely cathartic. No, always better than punching an employee. Uh, <laughs> HR would love me, huh? Uh, yeah. Tell me a moment in your life, Michael, that served as an inflection point and really changed the way you think. That's an easy one. That was when my son was born. I think prior to that, working extremely tirelessly and, and selfishly on the business gave me incredible joy and satisfaction and rightfully so. But I think when Connor was born, it allowed me to step back and walk in the apartment at the end of the day and realize there was much more to life than just company building. Well, I mean, I'd love to say I couldn't agree more, but I would have no idea. It's quite a way off. I think I need to find a girlfriend first. But That's a good first step. <laughs> it's a good first step. But who do you think is crushing it in the world of SaaS today and why? That's a great question. There's so many incredible companies, but I think the companies that focus in API first strategy are the ones I most admire and try to emulate. So companies like Okta and Twilio, Stripe, Braintree, I have a ton of respect for what all those guys have built. MuleSoft as well. So I think those guys are absolutely crushing it. And then I want to finish today, Michael, on what do you know now that you wish you'd known at the beginning? Now, I'm going to give you a choice. It can be at the beginning of your time with Amparticle or it can be at the beginning of Interclick. But what do you wish you'd know now at the beginning of dot, dot, dot? That it would all work out. There's been far too many stressful moments over the past, call it 10 years. And I think it does get a lot easier over time as a as an entrepreneur to manage your emotions and your psychology. And there's been a, a lot written about that, how that's 70% of the struggle in terms of being a, a founder. So I would just say, no matter what, keep your head down, stay in the pocket, don't get too 
too upset. Don't get too excited about any one thing. Try to stay as even keeled as possible. Michael, I think you can tell from my overexcited tone. I've absolutely loved having you on the show today. I'm so excited for the future ahead with Empire School. I'm absolutely gutted I'm not an angel investor, but it really has been such a pleasure. So thank you so much for joining me. Pleasure was all mine. Thanks a lot, Harry. What a fantastic episode that was with Michael and such exciting times ahead with M Particle. And if you'd like to see more from Michael, which you should, then you can follow him on Twitter at MCATS0630. That really is a must. Likewise, we'd love to welcome you behind the scenes here on Sasta. You can do that on Instagram at hstebbings1996 with two Bs. It'd be great to see you there. But before we leave you today, thanks to my friends at WePay. Let me introduce you to another very cool player in SaaS, InvoiceBerry. InvoiceBerry provides online invoicing software for small businesses and freelancers and it takes less than two minutes for business owners to sign up and send the first invoices to clients the pick of its features include auto converting quotes to invoices and automatic reminders learn more at invoiceberry.com and to learn how you can grow your revenue with integrated payments just like invoiceberry did visit wepay.com forward slash sasta they've got this fantastic cheat sheet on how to get started with platform payments again that's wepay.com forward slash sasta who knows work with wepay and you could even be featured in a future sasta profile here here, start at wepay.com forward slash Sasta. However, as a founder or operator, we all know that really your most important job is people operations, whether that be hiring execs, developing managers, retaining that top talent, and really building a high-performing culture. And that's why you need Lattice, because Lattice is the number one people management solution for growing companies. And that's why companies like Asana, Reddit, and Cruise build a strong company culture. With Lattice, it's easy to launch 360 reviews, share ongoing feedback, facilitate one-on-ones, set up goal tracking, and even run employees employee engagement surveys. And Lattice is the only solution that combines performance management and employee engagement, so operators can really make sure their top performers are happy. And Lattice is giving away three months of Lattice free to Sasta listeners. Just go to lattice.com forward slash Sasta to receive the offer. That's L-A-T-T-I-C-E dot com forward slash Sasta. Build an award-winning culture with Lattice, the number one people management solution. As always, I cannot thank you enough for your support, and I cannot wait to bring you another exceptional episode next week.